0: He's come and and spoke here before. You guys haven't seen him in a couple years, but we're really excited to hear from him about God's heart uh, for global missions. And so, would you guys welcome him on up? Thanks. Thank you. Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. It's a blessing to be here. I actually took the train up for the first time. I live in the San Diego area, just east of Oceanside in San Marcos. And so I was able to take the train yesterday for the first time up here and just relax and sort of enjoy the scenery, even though it was raining. Uh, It's a blessing to be back with you. It has been a couple of years, and I just want to thank Brian for the opportunity to come and share with you this morning. And I I read about, I talk to Brian occasionally here about what God's doing here in the church and through this church, both locally and globally. And it's a blessing for me to hear. Um, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And just camp out there for a second before we get started. But um, by God's grace, I've been able in the last year and a half to be full time with Shepherd Staff. My role is uh, the director of church relations and, and missionary care. So basically, I'm pastoring missionaries. And uh, I actually just got back two weeks ago. I took a small team from my church, uh, Calvary Chapel in Escondido, which is now called Cross Connection, new name, uh, to Indonesia. And we visited uh, missionaries that live there on the island of Java in Salatiga. And we were able to do English in a, uh, a Muslim madrasa and uh, interact with the leadership of uh, the largest uh, Islamic university there in Salatiga. And it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, then the team came back and I was able to go and spend four days in Taipei with uh, a couple of missionary families with little kids that live and minister in Taipei uh, fluent in Mandarin, doing incredible works among the working class people in Taipei, and so it's a privilege for me to do that. And you know, speaking of Life Water, many years ago, uh, I actually um, did some cross-cultural training for Life Water down at the U.S. Center for World Missions. They had a group of hydrologists and geologists that they were sending over to do wells in in West Africa. And uh, so they invited me to come up, and so I sort of trained these guys on understanding the cultural differences between us as Americans and trying to accomplish a task in the midst of a culture where tasks are not the highest priority, relationships are, and how things, wires can get crossed there uh, really easily. And they have a great ministry. And the interesting thing that, you, that I just want to have you keep in mind is that, you know, the world, uh, everybody on this planet needs water to live. And so water and providing safe drinking water is an incredible on-ramp into many places around the world uh, to live like Jesus and to represent Jesus by giving them living water. The other interesting thing is that most of the world wants something that we all provide as Americans. They want our language. And so English, especially English spoken by Americans, is an incredible uh, on-ramp into uh, many places around the world. You have it if you're born and raised here and speak English as your native language. You have a door opener that is incredible. And that's kind of what we did in Indonesia on this trip. And most of the stuff that I'm involved with now short-term team-wise is English and using that uh, to, to touch other people. And so these are some of the good works that the Lord calls us to do, things that matter in a fallen world, providing safe drinking water, providing people with a, a practical tool that can help them improve their life, English. And in that are opportunities then to talk about Jesus and what our motivation is. And so let's, uh, let's pray, and then let's get into God's Word. Father, thank you for this morning. What an amazing God you are. Lord, that you would intervene in our world, that you'd interrupt our lives and uh, call us to yourself, Lord, and to do it because you are a graceful and a merciful God. And as we look now at these three verses, as we look at what you moved Paul to make sure that the Ephesians understood and what every believer needs to understand, I pray that your spirit would uh, put us at even more of an awe of you and even more desirous to walk closely with you and then to be the kind of people you want us to be, walking in the good works of that you've prepared, custom fit for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do before we actually look at these three verses is I want to kind of give you, go back Brian's introductory message. He sort of gave you a bird's-eye view of Ephesians. And I just want to jog your memories on a couple of key points. Understand that the true and the living God, when he created the universe as we know it, he created it incredibly diverse, yet completely unified. All the different components and aspects of creation, as diverse as they are, we're all working in unison, interacting with the one who created them and interacting and relating to every other part of the creation the way God designed. And that's reflecting God's glory. And that's important to understand that. And then in the midst of that, God created mankind. And we, of all the things he created, had his fingerprints on us like nothing else that he created. We were created in his image and likeness. And so he created us and gave us a a role, a task to manage the creation, to have stewardship over it and to have dominion over it, exercise a certain amount of power for the good of creation and for the glory of God and obviously for the good of ourselves. But he gave man the freedom to reciprocate love back to himself. And so to have the freedom to reciprocate love, you have to have the freedom to not. And so God permitted man to make a decision. And that decision was catastrophic for every aspect of creation. You know the story, man, Adam and Eve rebelled. They basically jabbed a knife in God's heart by saying, we don't trust you. You've limited what is good for us. They reject, they listen to the enemy. They listen to their own conscience. And what we call the fall happens. And the fall of man ripples throughout creation. It's a domino effect where not only man, but all of creation now, because man was to be God's representative, the creation is now plunged by man's decision into decay, into darkness, and is basically in 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 a mode of dying. And that's the condition that the earth exists in, created in God's image. Uh, we were created in God's image, and by our decisions, we brought this catastrophic train wreck onto the creation. And God's plan, of course, we know, is to redeem not only the individuals created in his image and likeness, but creation itself. And so so Jesus comes into the world, the, the true and the living God becomes a missionary, steps into the chaos, into the darkness, into the decay, and gracefully makes it possible for man to be restored to God. And in that restoration of mankind, of individuals to the God who created them, then God uses man to begin the process of, in a sense, restoring the creation in all of its ways. Here's the key concept, and what I want you to be prepared for as we're going to look at these verses. The key concept is that the world is is in decay, It's in darkness, and in a sense, it's dying. And God's redeemed people are in the midst of that, representing him. And uh, in the fall, keep this in mind, the components of creation are not interacting and relating to God as they were designed. And all of the components of the creation, especially man, is not interacting or relating to God, to other people, or the creation in the proper way. Keep that in mind as we're going to go through this text. Now, interesting about this book, it's the only book of the Bible that, that, well, not the only book, but Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, is the only church in the Bible where we have a picture of it at three different stages of its life. We have its birth recorded for us in Acts 18, 19, and 20. So we have a picture of, of the birth of the church in 51 or 52 A.D., Uh, Roughly 13 years later, in its early teen years, we have a picture of the condition of the church here in Ephesians. Paul writes the letter of of Ephesians to a church that's pre-teens. And then very interesting, we have another picture of this church in Revelation chapter 2 as Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, which at that time is roughly 42, 43 years old. So to, to look at... To look at the church at Ephesus and at least see it at its birth, what was it dealing with 13 years later? What was it dealing with roughly 30 years after that? Much to be learned. Now, I'm also in agreement with Brian that the book of Ephesians, although written to believers in Ephesus, many scholars believe, and I agree, that because he doesn't mention specific things like he does in some of his other letters, specific things going on in that church, that this letter is not just a letter to the Ephesians, but it's basically Paul's understanding of of God's manifesto for the redemption of all things, of creation. So, yeah, it's relevant to the Ephesians. They need to understand what their personal salvation is all about, but they also need to understand that God's got this bigger thing going on that they're a part of. And so it really is, it's a manifesto of God's gracious mission to bridge the divide, to reconnect for proper interaction and relating uh, the things within his creation and his creation with himself. Now, you've already covered, uh, you know, from chapter 1, verse 1, up to chapter 2, verse 8. In those first 14 verses, Paul talks about the believers and how we're spiritually blessed how God's grace is the the source of all that blessing, and all of it is for his glory. Then we see his heart in in prayer at the end of chapter 1 from verses 15 to 23. He prays for the Ephesians, incredible depth of theology there and understanding and hearing Paul's heart, which is God's heart for the Ephesians. And then last week, you guys heard from Eric, and you heard the first seven verses, and In those first seven verses, he he reminds them. He thinks it's significant. Paul thinks it's significant to remind the Ephesians of where they were. They were dead in sin. They were walking in in trespasses. Uh, They they were in a condition of living deadness. See, the concept of zombies is biblical. Hollywood didn't invent it. (laughs) Walking dead people is what's described in the Bible, the condition of man before God interrupts and intervenes. Man is... Alive physically, alive mentally, alive emotionally, alive with will, but dead, disconnected from the God who created him and therefore disconnected from everything else that God has created. So we are walking dead people. But God, verse 4 says, intervened, and he made us alive. And so Eric kind of you know, summarized it in a really concise way. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2 are what we are saved from, our deadness. Verses 4 to 7, how that salvation happened. And in the midst of that, he points out how it happened by God's grace. God's grace is what has saved us. And now we're going to look this morning at what we are saved to. We know what we're saved from. We're going to look at what we are saved to. So let me begin reading at verse 4. And read through verse 10, and then we'll look at those specific three verses. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now listen, this parenthetical phrase, for by grace you have been saved. Then he gets back. And, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And now our, more, our text for this morning, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, these three verses are significant. It was sort of a God thing that Brian would ask me to do these verses because I use them regularly. And when I first met the Lord at age 22, about the age that many of you are, (laughs) I came from a religious background. I was born and raised in the Roman Catholic Church. If you were born and raised in that, you know the uh, idea you hear, the idea of grace, but you also hear the importance of works and you're sort of, schooled to believe that your salvation, if it's possible to know it, is, is hinging on your good works and what Christ did on the cross. And so the Protestant Reformation that took place sort of said, no, that's not right. That uh, the, the pendulum, the center line where God wants things to be, the pendulum had swung so far over in this direction, the Protestant Reformation sort of brought it back the prior to that works were overemphasized as that which contributes to your acceptance by God. Protestant Reformation brought it back and said, no, it's all of grace, but then the pendulum swung too far this way. And I experienced that because when I first met the Lord and I was being discipled by a navigator guy down in the San Diego area, and I was going through memory verses, I was tasked to memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But I was never told to memorize verse 10. Verse 10 was left off. And that's, again, understandable when you understand the background and where you were coming from. But God's word brings the center line balance. Uh, Apparently, contradictory concepts, grace and works, are kept in proper tension in the center line. But we, because of our sin, tend to swing the pendulum this way or to swing it this way and move out of the center line and concentrate on one side or the other. And so that's what, in a sense, Paul is doing here. And so let's look specifically at what he has to say uh, in these three verses. Verse 8. He says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. Now, remember, he just used that phrase. It was sort of parenthetical before. Now he wants to expand on that. And he says, listen, it's important for you to understand. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting into grace because I know the other guys have covered it from a number of different angles. But the concept of grace is, is crucial. And the concept is basically that God... Because of the character of who he is, he he bestows that which is good and beneficial on us or objects that deserve the opposite. Because of our rebellion, because of our rejection of all that God is, and, and, and thinking that we know what life is all about more than him, we deserve to be punished. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be separated from him eternally. But God doesn't give us what we do deserve. He's extending mercy to us. And in fact, he gives us what we don't deserve, an opportunity for restored relationship to himself. So grace is a crucial concept. And it's interesting. We have defined grace in our Western minds. We're good at definitions of abstract conceptual ideas. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And and, and all that's true. But how is God unveiled that he's graceful well god's word is in story form we know that god is graceful because he tells us the story of his interaction with a rebellious world led by the one being created in his image and likeness so when adam and eve disobey and they're isolated he could have left them there forever and been just and right in doing so But because he's graceful, he goes right into where they're at, and he unveils a plan of restoration for them to himself, and then the ripple effect of that throughout the rest of his creation in a good way. You see? So grace, I think you have a handle on that, and I know you've heard it from a number of different angles. So he wants the church at Ephesus to know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. You're saved by grace through faith. In other words, you trusted, you relied upon, you took God at His word that Christ had paid the price for your sin, that He took what you deserve and then He conquered death. And you take God at His word. You entrust yourself to what God has revealed, to that truth. You've accepted it. How? By faith. It's not just mentally acknowledging the fact, but you've actually thrown yourself onto Christ. You've ridden his coattails to acceptance to God. When we took that plane a few weeks ago to Asia, think about it. You're exercising biblical faith when you fly. You don't add anything to the equation. You want to go from point A to point B, LA to Jakarta. (laughs) What do you do to get yourself to Jakarta? Nothing. You get on the plane and you buckle your seatbelt. You completely entrust yourself to the ability of the pilot and the mechanical ability of the plane to take you where you want to go. You are exercising biblical faith. You're not just mentally acknowledging sitting in the airport. I mentally acknowledge that plane can fly from L.A. to Jakarta. You're not only believing it as fact your belief, your trust that it's true, motivates you to get on the plane and buckle up. And after the plane is airborne, you don't buckle, unbuckle your seatbelt and run to the cockpit and say, scoot over, I want to help. You'll crash the plane. <laughs> the pilots can get you all the way where you need to go. You just obey them. Just trust in them. So, by grace you have been saved through faith. And listen, this is not... Your own doing, your salvation, even the faith that you exercise, it's not your own doing. You didn't whip it up. You didn't create it. You didn't generate it. None of this process of you being right with God was you. It's all of him. You were dying of thirst. You were given a cup and offered water, and all you did was put the cup out there to accept the water. You see? None of it is actually generated by you. It's trusting in the one who's providing it for you. So, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Your salvation is a gift that you accepted. You appropriated. it. You trusted that it was from God. And so he says, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, listen to verse 9. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. Now, why does he say this? Well, the church at Ephesus was a somewhat multi-ethnic church. And there were people there from a Gentile background, and there were Jews in the church at Ephesus. And so when Paul says, it is not of works, lest someone should boast, he knows human nature, first of all. If God had set up the system where you being right with him was based on you contributing anything, what would you do? You'd boast about it. Our nature is to say, I'm not that bad, compared to compared to Saddam, compared to whoever we always, if anything hinges on our merit, we'll always then begin comparing ourselves to other people and feeling pretty good about ourselves because we can always find somebody more messed up than we are. (laughs) You see? So God's gracious salvation does not hinge in any way, shape, or form on our works. It's all based on His grace. And the reality of it is that... um, when these Jews in the church heard the word works connected to salvation, or what Paul's saying, it's not based on works, for the Jew, works were the keeping of the law, doing the Old Testament, the righteousness, the sacrifices, the system, the law that God gave. So to them, the Jews would have heard works, and they would have thought the law. The Gentiles would have heard works, you see, and they would have thought of the good deeds that a a client would be rendering to a patron. I'm going to take a step back here and give you a little glimpse of culture here for you to understand. I've lived in Japan. I've lived in the central Philippines. I spent a lot of time in Thailand, a lot of time in Singapore, in Nepal, Indonesia. So uh, I'm an Asia kind of guy. And, And you learn cultures. And Asian cultures specifically are very honor and shame oriented. And face is very important. And individuality is, shun- is, is, is put down, you see. And in an honor and shame type culture, which it was at the time of Christ and when the New Testament was written, there was a system called the patron-client system. The majority of the people had no power or influence or access to resources. They lived day-to-day pauper lives. There were a few people that were wealthy and had power and influence And so the system was such that the poor people, when some major event happened, they would go to the rich people called the patrons and they would say, can you help me? And when the patron would help them, the Greek word for that was charis, the same word for grace. Charis in the culture, charis in God's kingdom. The patron, no necessity for him to help The poor client helps the poor client. It's unmerited favor shown by the patron to the client. But then the client has a responsibility to always then speak highly of the patron and to do deeds and charitable acts in the name of the patron, to raise the patron's honor. Very important concepts to understand. So the Jews would hear works as keeping the law. The Gentiles would hear works as the client's works to honor the patron. Charitable deeds done in the name of the one who graciously helped them. And so Paul knows that the heart of man and the Holy Spirit, of course, has led him. And he knows that the heart of man is to take the center line one direction or another. So he knows that when he says it's you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. He knows these people are going to grab onto the concept of grace and completely bail on the concept of works. Grab onto the grace and, hey, works don't matter. Don't bother worrying about works anymore because it's all about grace. He knew that, so the Holy Spirit led him to give us verse 10, which I was never challenged to memorize. I figured it out years later. Verse 10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. The Greek is poema. The basic concept of the word is something that is made, something that is crafted by a creator. It's actually the root word of our our word for poem. You are God's poem. Uniquely created by God to express aspects of him. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? Good works. See, he's not going to leave the works to be misunderstood. Oh, no, your works don't save you, but you better wrap your mind around the significance and the importance of good works. This is what you were saved for. Works do not save you, but works are evidence that you're saved. We are not saved of works. We are saved for works. And this is so important that I think we need to walk through this concept of good works. And I want you to keep in mind what I shared with you originally, the idea of at the fall, the ripple domino effect of man's rebellion was to plunge everything, including himself, into decay and darkness and a death spiral. And therefore, what happened was man and everything in God's creation stopped interacting and relating to other parts of the creation in the way they were designed. Crucial to understand that. Now, go ahead and put up that next slide. Jesus, as he begins his ministry, in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, talking about his people, keeping in mind the world is, in, uh, is, is decaying and dark, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Speaking to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. You're here to stop the decay, to impede the process of corruption and decay. You are the salt of the earth. And then he says, you are the light of the world. The world is in darkness. You are the light of the world. He says, verse five, chapter 5, verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light so shine in the midst of the darkness so that they will see your good works and unbelievers will give glory to God when they see God's people doing good works. Now, big subject to do a whole message on this, but let me give you a concept on light that the Lord showed me a few years ago. If we were going to ask, what is the definition of light? We would say, well, light is the absence of darkness. Light is that which reveals, illuminates, manifests, makes visible, makes known. And we would agree with all that. Light is that which reveals or unveils or makes known, right? But that's not the end game of light. Once things are unveiled, then what? Let me give you this example. If we turn all the lights off in here, and I say, you've got 30 seconds to head out the exits, what are you going to do? You're going to have chaos. (laughs) You're going to bump into one another. You're going to trip over chairs. You're going to trip over purses. You're going to slam into one another. There's no light. If the light is on, it reveals, it illumines, it makes manifest, right? That's what light does. But for what end? Light makes proper interaction with that which is external to you possible. If the light is on, you see things the way they are, you can now interact or relate to the things in the right way. That's the crucial concept of light in the scripture. Light makes proper interaction and relationship relating to possible in the way God designed. When the fall happened, proper, the world was plunged into darkness. Man is not relating to God or interacting with God or any other person or the creation the right way. He's doing it in a self-centered, egotistical, all-about-me way. And the creation is bumping into itself. Jesus changes all that. And so good works are the shining of light because the good works are God's people interacting with God and everything else the right way. It's shining light. So even unbelievers can say, wow, look at that. Why are they doing that? When we're in this madrasa in Indonesia, when we're at the Muslim University in Indonesia and we're teaching English and we're doing what we're doing, why are you doing this? Hey, because we love you. And we know that English will help you. And we want to give you help to increase your life. And our motivation in doing this is because we know the God who created all things. And we worship God. We worship Jesus. And he's the reason. We're here, you see? Very important concepts to understand. So good works are crucial in the life of the believer and even more in the life of fallen creation. Now, next verse, in John chapter 10, Jesus did good works. Jesus, if he didn't heal the sick, cast out the demons, raise the dead, walk on the water, stop the storms, all that he did, His message would not have had the weight. He didn't just come and preach and teach. The good works validated that you better listen to his message. So if you bring water to somebody in Uganda, you give them natural water that's going to help them. It may open the door for the living water they really need. And they'll listen to you because you've done an act of kindness. You've acted like God to them carried about them, cared about them in the midst of their, their situation. In John 10, Jesus answered, when the religious leaders are ready to kill him, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He said, look, I've done a lot of good works. I know you guys want to stone me. Why do you want to stone me? Which, which work has irritated you to the point of wanting to kill me? They said, well, it's none of, the, none of your works, actually. It's because you, being a man, claim to be God. See, good works open the door to introduce Jesus as God because good works are interacting with God and others, especially people oppressed and suffering injustice and and wrapped up and bound with the things of this world. When we help them, when we do good works for them, it opens the door for them to say, why are you doing this? Because my God did this. My God who became man. Acts 2, 44, you can read it. The new believers that got saved the day of Pentecost, what did they do? They sold their houses. If any man, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. What does that mean? When you, get, when you fall into grace... <laughs> When you accept Christ and have new life and you're a new creation, is anything really new in your life? No. You have the same job, same wife, same kids, same friends, same car. But it says you're a new creation in Christ. Yeah, you're new. Therefore, you start to interact with everything around you differently. The new believer said, I want to help the poor and the oppressed. I'm going to sell my house. I want to help the poor and the needy. I'm going to sell my house to do it because I know these things aren't mine in the first place. I'm now interacting with my material possessions the way God designed me to. They don't possess me. I possess them, and I'm a steward over them. Does that make sense? Acts 9.36, you can write it down and read it later. A woman named Dorcas and her good works. Then, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, Paul's writing to a young pastor, pastoring a church that's close to his heart. A man, a, a Greek that, man had, that Paul had discipled in ministry. And he's writing to Titus. And in Titus, go ahead and go to the next slide. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says to Titus the pastor, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Titus, you need to be a model yourself of good works. Young pastor, good works need to be a part of who you are. And you are a model, you are an example. Then he goes on and he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, talking to Titus, he says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are what? Zealous for good works. Titus, you've got to understand that God created a people for himself. They're now his possession. And they need to be zealous for good works. Not zealous for Bible study. Not zealous for worship. Not zealous for coffee. And fellowship, oh, that'll all be there. That's the natural outflow of having life. You want to hang out with other people that are alive. No, you got to tell people that good works need to be a part of who they are in Christ. They need to be zealous for good works. Look at the next verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people in the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for what? Every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you think? Are you tired of hearing about good works? Well, let's hear it one more time from Paul, written to a young pastor. Verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. See, you have to learn to devote yourself to good works. It's a learned habit. It doesn't come naturally to selflessly do acts of good for others that are in bad situations. It doesn't come naturally. You've got to tell our people to learn to devote themselves to good work, especially to people with urgent needs. Now, one last verse. Hebrews chapter 10, Paul says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good Bible study. Stir up one another, provoke one another to love and good Bible study, good worship, good fellowship. No, you don't need to stir up those things. They are going to happen. You need to encourage them, but you don't need to provoke them or stir them up. What is it you need to stir up? Love and what? Good works. Because it doesn't come natural. Now, quick point, and then I'll stitch this together. When, the, when he uses the phrase good works, as Brian pointed out in the first message, it's not moral change he's referring to. It is a good work if you had a pornography addiction and you're delivered from it. That's a good work. If you were really crummy with managing your money and spending it foolishly and God's changed you so that you use it properly now, that's a good work. That's a moral work that God is doing. That's not what good works means. Good works are those intentional things that we do in the midst of a fallen world to people affected by the fallen world that act like Jesus to them, that meet their needs. You see, good works are done on behalf of those who, for whatever reason, oppression, injustice, or whatever, their lives are a mess, and we go and we commit ourselves to them and help them. Oppression, if you hear that word thrown around, the the simplest definition. Oppression is when I sin and I cause somebody else to feel the effects of my sin. And oppressed people are people who are suffering the effect of somebody else's sin. That's an oppressed people. And we are called to minister to the oppressed. Whether it's oppression because of their racial background, their ethnicity, their lack of education, their dysfunctional family, a bad economy, whatever. Oppression. We are to be salt and light and doing good works for those that have, are suffering because of the effects of the fall. Not just moral change. That's not the good works it's referring to. It's specifically speaking of charity. So let me close with reading this one more time and then give you a little something to ponder. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, you used to walk in darkness. Matter of fact, in chapter 4, he's going to say, you were darkness. He's going to say to them, you didn't just walk in darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light. And here's what he says. These good works, God prepared beforehand for you so that you'll walk in them. So here's here's what I want you to chew on as we close. Chew on this idea that the good works that God has prepared for you to do, he prepared beforehand. And your life experience up to this moment has given you the inventory for that. Your education, your vocational background, your family background, your ministry experience, your money, Your time, you have an inventory crafted by God for this moment in time. And he wants you to look at your inventory and look around and say, how can I, Lord, from my inventory specifically designed for me, begin using that to touch the lives of those that are, you know, whose lives are messed up? How can I let my good works so shine before men that they will be seen and bring you glory? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and the truth of your word. And thank you for knowing us so much that you know that we go to extremes. We either run one side of the pendulum up or we run it to the other side. But you bring us the balance, Lord. May what you've shared through Paul to the Ephesians resonate in our hearts. That we are saved by your amazing grace. But we are saved, Lord, now. We are your workmanship for good works. Let us, Lord, find those good works and do them for your glory, the good of those we serve, and, Lord, our own joy and satisfaction. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.